0: Parsha Shlach has 119 verses and 3 mitzvot and the Jewish people are currently under the impression that the conquest of Canaan is imminent. They've had the Exodus, they've had the Sinai experience, they built the Tabernacle, they managed to persevere after the sin of the golden calf, and now the Tabernacle is complete. The nation knows its formations and it's time to begin the plan for entering the land of Israel, and the nation decides to send scouts to do a reconnaissance mission on the enemy. Hashem spoke to Moses, saying, Send forth men, if you please, and let them spy out the land of Canaan that I give to the children of Israel. One man each from his father's tribe shall you send, everyone a leader among them. So this is going to begin one of the tragic stories of the Torah, where Moshe is going to send 12 emissaries, 12 scouts, 12 spies from the children of Israel. Each one of them is a leader of their respective tribe. And they're going to scout the land and come back with a pretty damning report, which is going to cause severe consequences for the Jewish people. Now, it's interesting, Rashi points out, that the very last item that we talked about in last week's Parsha, which was the Lashon Hara, the evil talk of Miriam against her brother, Moses and her subsequent quarantining because of her tzaras for seven days, that's the very last item in last week's Parsha, and that's juxtaposed to the beginning of this week's Parsha, the first major event of the Parsha, and of course that's the sending of the scouts of the spies, and Rashi asks the question, why are these two stories juxtaposed? Now, Rashi tells us because Miriam was stricken with respect, or as a result of her negative talk, she spoke negatively about her brother, And these wicked people, i.e. the scouts that ultimately spoke evil about the land of Israel and caused those terrible consequences, they'll rebound the parasha, they saw what happened to Miriam, and they didn't take the lesson to heart. They didn't take Musar to heart. They didn't take the criticism. They didn't take the lessons to heart, and therefore they repeated that same mistake. And the commentaries add that, in reality, the Almighty instructed Moses to send the spies earlier. Moshe delayed in sending them until after the fate of Miriam's Lashon Hara was revealed in hopes that they would actually see what happened to her and they would take the lesson and would not fall into the same mistake, would not speak negatively. And I think there's a very important takeaway here. We talk about Musar a lot, uh, the idea of, of ethics, the idea of self-refinement, and here we see the actual definition from our sages as to what exactly Musr is. Musr is to see something and to be impacted by it. These wicked people, i.e. these scouts that spoke in by about, about the Line of Israel, they did not take the Musr that they should have taken from the episode of Miriam. When you see something, when you observe something, you have to learn from what you encounter. And someone could be a great Torah scholar, and they can know a lot of laws, a lot of halacha, a lot of insights, a lot of Talmud. But unless it penetrates their heart, it's not going to change who they are. And I think it's an important point to stress. My grandfather was always very keen on repeating this idea. Mussar is not a distinct subject matter of study. It's not like, oh, there's Torah study. There's reading the Torah and there's studying Mishnah and Talmud. Oh, and there's also studying Mussar. No, Mussar is the underlying layer of application to all Torah. When someone studies Torah, there's two ways to do it. There's to study Torah and to have it as almost an intellectual pursuit, an intellectual exercise. They study it and they're engaging with it on a cognitive intellectual level. Musar is everything that you study and moreover, not just what you study, what you encounter, what you perceive in the greater world is something that you're going to use to apply, to inculcate, to integrate into your mode of practice, into your behavior. And this is why Musa is very difficult, because Musa demands of us that we're constantly improving. We're never resting on our laurels. We're taking everything to heart. Everything is a lesson for us. And there's always room for us to improve. These people, they're the leaders of their respective tribes. These are great Torah scholars. These are, Tzaddikim. Rashi tells us, these are righteous people. Yet, because they were, missing this critical cod, this critical component of Torah, namely Musar, they in effect became wicked people. And Rashi, again, uses very harsh terminology. These people are called Rishaim. They're wicked people, not because of their deeds, but because of how they did not take the lesson that would have forestalled their negative behavior that comes consequently. Miriam was quarantined. What do you think everyone was doing for those seven days? You would imagine that people were trying to take the lesson. Why does this happen? Miriam, she's one of the great matriarchs of the Jewish people. Moses' older sister, she was a prophetess. She was one of the leaders of the Jewish people. And what happens? She speaks negatively about her brother in a seemingly innocuous way from our perspective. And she is stricken with Saras. And she has to remain outside the camp. And everyone says, oh my goodness, if this could happen to Miriam, this could definitely happen to me. How do I make sure that I shield myself from the mistakes that led her to her situation? You would imagine that probably everyone was doing that. And of course, that's what we should do in times of tragedy. But Musser is that last mile. That's when you actually take it to yourself, inculcate it, absorb it, and now change who you are as a result. Here we see that these people had the opportunity, then take Musser, and the results speak for themselves. Its disastrous consequences ensued thanks to this lack of Musr. The Talmud tells us that one of the ways for us to combat the Yetzirah is by reminding ourselves of the day of death. When someone dwells on their own mortality, when someone ponders their pending demise, that is a way for them to live life with a keener perspective, with a clearer attitude what am I really living for? Is this life permanent? Is it temporary? All of us are going to die. And therefore, we should think about what are we doing for our eternal legacy? What are we doing for our soul? The Sahara, its objective is to make us forget about our spiritual eternal self and dwell exclusively on the world that we're currently living in and to focus on our identity as a body in lieu of our identity as a soul. And therefore, when we dwell on the fact that that everything that the Yei is proposing, everything that it's endorsing is coming to an end. When we die, the body and its orbit, its universe ceases to matter. When someone dies, when you dwell on that, then the Yei and its arguments become defamed. And the Chavat Chaim pointed out that Esau, the brother of Jacob, he had the exact opposite takeaway. When he discovered that he's about to die, he told his brother, Behold, I am about to die, and therefore, what benefit do I have of the firstborn right? And what this tells us is that when someone encounters inspiration that could be used for a positive takeaway, it really depends on whether they have the Musar gene or not, or the Musar characteristic or not. The Talmud tells us that when someone dwells on their own demise, well, then that will shield them, that will prevent them from falling into the clutches of the Yitzharam. Asav, the brother of Jacob, he did not have Moser, and therefore dwelling on his own demise actually had the opposite effect. It was used to deepen his rebuffing of the spiritual, and he says, okay, give me the red soup, and I'm willing to forfeit the spiritual powers that are inherent in the firstborn rite. So Moshe is instructed to go send the 12 scouts. And the verse is clear send forth men if you please. Shlach Lecha, send for yourself. God tells Moses, listen, I'm not really behind this idea. I promised you that the land of Israel is a great land. I promised you that I'm going to ensure that you conquer it without any hiccups. But you want to do it, or the people at least. They want to start it out. They don't want to rely, so to speak, entirely on the miraculous conquest that's promised by God. And therefore, you're sending it for yourself. This is not God's decision. In effect, this is Moses and the people's decision to pursue the natural, prudent means of conquering. Of course, when you want to attack the enemy, you want to know as much about their layout and their strengths and their weaknesses to be able to exploit those weaknesses in battle. But God tells Moses, you should be aware that when you are degrading it, when you're saying, you know what, I'm going to pursue natural means, then in effect, you are excluding and obviating the spiritual conquest, the miraculous con- conquest, and once you're taking it into your own hands, well, humans are fallible, and this could go wrong. And we're seeing over here at the very beginning of the story that the blunder of the episode of the spies, of the episode of the scouts, it actually began before they even treaded foot in the land of Israel. The decision to send the spies to begin with was a mistake. And I think it's it's an interesting question. You know, it is prudent for us to scout out an enemy and the enemy's territory before launching a war of conquest. So did they make a mistake or not? So there's a very long essay here by the Ramban trying to disentangle all the elements of this decision. Was, was it Moses' fault? Was it the people's fault? What was their rationale? And he tells us that indeed the people knew that God promised them the conquest of Canaan, the land of Israel, in a miraculous fashion. But after all, the law states is that we cannot rely on a miracle. And therefore, because we can't rely on the miracle, we have to take steps by ourselves to ensure that we're doing our best effort. We're trying our hardest to make sure that we're doing it properly. But the problem was that God already told them that the conquest will be miraculous. It's not going to be a natural victory. It's going to be a supernatural victory. In fact, the promise was that during the conquest of Canaan, no one's going to die. It's going to be a supernatural victory, a total victory, a war that's really fought in the spiritual realms Above the realms of nature. And when they said we want to send spies, we want to send scouts, they are lowering the level of, of, of the war. It's now a natural war and a natural war. A lot of things can go wrong. Sometimes the enemy is stronger and the enemy will win. And even if the enemy is weaker, well, sometimes the weaker enemy finds the wherewithal to fight and to win. And I think this is almost a broader subject. We, humanity, we get to determine the degree of closeness and the kind of relationship that we have with God. If we say, you know, we're going to rely on God completely, then he indeed is going to become worthy of our reliance. He's going to pick up our slack, so to speak, and he's going to increase the amount of oversight, the amount of divine providence that he provides us. But once they question God, once they say, oh, we have to look at the population, we have to look at the fortifications, we have to really assess and analyze the enemy, in effect they're showing is that, well, God's not unimpeachable, and therefore we have to rely on our own self. You rely on your own self, then God says, okay, I'm going to let you rely on your own self, but you are fallible and things could go wrong. Now, Moshe does acquiesce to send them. Yet he is not reprimanded for that decision. It seems like what it's telling us is that a leader has to yield to the will of the people. People want to send scouts, and Moses recognizes that, and he tells them, okay, let's go ahead with this. Let's send the scouts. So Moses says to them, forth from the wilderness of Paran at Hashem's command. They were all distinguished men, heads of the children of Israel, were they? And the Torah goes on to list the 12 tribes and the representatives of each one of those twelve tribes. Now, of course, two of them are going to stand out from the tribe of Judah: Caleb, ben Yefuna, the son of Yefuna, and the tribe of Ephraim: Hoshea, bin Nun. Hoshea, the son of Nun. These are the names of the men who Moses sent to spy out the land of Canaan, and Moshe renamed Hoshea Joshua. In Hebrew, the word Hoshea is like Joshua, but minus the first letter of the Yud, and here. Joshua is being renamed from Hosea to Joshua. Why is Moses renaming Joshua? So Rashi tells us that he prayed, because the word Hosea means salvation, but Yehoshua means God will provide salvation. And the inference is that Moshe is praying that may God save you, may God spare you from the plot of the spies. Now, why is Joshua getting an additional yud and the, the tenth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which we know in the gematria system, each letter in the Hebrew alphabet corresponds to a number, and therefore the letter yud corresponds to ten, which of course is the number of scouts that ultimately went awry. You have the two scouts, Caleb and Joshua, that defend the land of Canaan, the land of Israel, and the other ten that speak negatively about it. So why is he added here a Yud? So the commentaries give various answers. For one, Joshua is being given the strength here. By getting an additional Yud, which equals 10, he's given the strength to contend with the 10 scouts, the 10 spies that are going to oppose him. Alternatively, he's going to take the merit of those 10 other spies. There's an interesting teaching in the Talmud. In the book of Hadidah, page 15a, the Talmud tells us that if someone is meritorious and their friend is a sinner, then not only does the meritorious one have his own righteousness, his own merit, but he actually acquires the merit of his friend. And here Joshua, he's not only going to have his own merit, he's going to have the additional yud, the additional 10, i.e. the additional merit of those 10 spies that went awry. Now there's a very... Unusual, interesting teaching in the Talmud in the Book of Sanhedrin, page 107. It tells us that we know there's been several people in the Torah that were renamed. Abraham was really, was originally Abraham and he became Abraham. Sarah was originally Sarai. She became Sarah. Jacob was only Jacob and an additional name was given to him. So there's a, there's, there's a pattern here. There's a trend that we see in the Torah that names are changed or names are being amended or there are additional names given to people. There's only one person in the Torah that had had a letter reduced from her name, and that's Sarai. Sarai became Sarah, but the letter Yud of the word Sarai was deducted and was supplanted with the letter Hey. And the Talmud says that the Yud, that letter, for generations, for years, that letter was demanding repayment by God. And it was saying and screaming for years to be placed back in the name of a righteous person. That letter, so to speak, that was part of the name of Sarah when she was originally called Sarai. And it was reduced from her name and replaced with the hey. That letter Yud was saying to God, I need to be put in the name of a righteous person. And here Hoshea is renamed Yehoshua. And that same Yud that was taken away from Sarah is given to Joshua, A very interesting, uh, almost an odd idea that the letter is complaining and the letter hey was replaced with the letter Yud and that letter Yud is now looking for a home and it finds a home in, in Joshua. So it's a very obviously advanced idea that the Talmud is, is sharing here. I want to maybe speculate as to what this means. The Talmud tells us that the world that we're currently residing in was called Olamazet. This world was created with the letter Hey, the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Whereas Olam Haba, the afterlife, the upcoming world, was created with the letter Yud, the tenth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So again, another advanced idea. We don't know exactly what that means. But we see here, Sarai, she originally had the Yud. She was originally dominated by the other world perspective. And God said, no, 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 we have to take away the Yud. I have to put the hay instead. She has to be someone, a woman of the people, so to speak. She has to live in this world. Whereas Joshua, Moses had to add that same yield. He had to become more like Sarah was originally in order for him to succeed, in order for him to have the wherewithal, in order for him to resist the temptations of the of the scouts. Maybe we could suggest that for, for Abram and Sarah, their transformation was to become someone, people who are going to influence the world, influence the people around them. They have to become interdependent. They have to become active in society. They have to engage with the people around them to spread the messages of monotheism. Whereas Joshua, he's now going to be surrounded with very bad company, company that's going to try to influence him to join their cabal to join their rebellion, to join their mutiny, and to speak negatively about the land of Israel. And therefore, he has to go in the opposite direction. He has to become like otherworldly, become like the independence that's granted and all about in the afterlife to be able to have the resolute strength of character and fortitude to be able to resist their temptations. Now, it is an interesting question why Moses prayed only for Joshua and not for the rest of the scouts. If Moses knows ahead of time that this thing could go really badly, why does he send them, and why does he only pray for Joshua? That's an interesting question that the commentaries talk about. Regardless, Moses gives them their their mandate, and he tells them, verse seventeen: Moses sent them to spy the land of Canaan, and said to them, "Ascend here in the south and climb the mountain, see the land. How is it? The people that dwells in it are they strong? Or are they weak? Or are they few? Or are they numerous?" And how is the land itself? Is it a good land? Is it a bad land? Are the cities open cities or are they fortified? Is a land fertile or is the land lean? Are there trees in it or not? You should strengthen yourself and take from the fruit of the land and the days were the season of the first ripe grapes. There's a few interesting things here that we find in Rashi. First of all, Rashi tells us that Moses tells them to begin in the south and then to ascend. Why to begin specifically in the south and then to ascend? Says Rashi, this is the... Methodology of salesman. When you're a good salesman, a good sales technique is to show the bad product and then show the good product. And that's the way to kind of set their expectations low and then constantly exceed them. I think this is an interesting thing. Moshe realizes that this was a perilous idea, this to go really wrong, and he's trying to persuade them, he's trying to sell them, and therefore he says, okay head from the south and see the negative parts of land or the worst parts of the land, and then you'll be wowed as the mission continues. Now, what to investigate? So when you investigate the land, is it a land that produces strong people or weak people? Are they living in open cities and therefore they're not steered of attack? Or are they terrified of attack and therefore they're really weak and they're, they're cooped up in fortified cities? The verse says that Moshe told them to look for, if there are trees in it or not, which is a very unusual question. You know, what land does not have trees? And Rashi here gives us an amazing idea. He says, when it says, are there trees, it doesn't mean, are there literal trees? Of course, every country has trees in it. But what it means is, is there a man who is righteous amongst them? And there's many times in Jewish literature that people are compared to trees. Adam eats Hasadem, man is a tree of the field. Is there a man in the land of Canaan that, in that person's merit, would defend the people, would prevent them from being conquered? And this is a great example, I think, of Rashi's role. You read a verse, it seems odd, and Rashi shows you uh, deeper layers of understanding that makes the verse uh, very readable. Okay, so they entered the land, they ascended in spite of the land from the wilderness of, of Tsin to the expanse of the approach of Hamas, they ascended in the south, and he arrived in Hebron. And Rashi, of course, jumps in this. What has mean he arrived in Hebron? Were they traveling together? Why is it only describing one person coming to Hebron? And of course, Hebron is the place where Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Leah are interred, are buried. And therefore, Rashi tells us that he came to Hebron, to Hebron. That's only Caleb. Caleb went there and he prayed by the grave sites of our great ancestors, Abram, Isaac, and Jacob and their spouses because he did not want to fall into the prey, into the traps of the rest of the scouts. They arrived at the valley of Eshkol and cut from their vine with one cluster of grapes and bore it on a double pole and of the pomegranates and of the figs. So Rashi describes here just the gargantuan size of the fruits of the land of Canaan at that time, they had eight people, four on each side of the pole, double pole, carrying one cluster of grapes. And then two additional people, one person carrying one pomegranate and one person carrying one fish. You have 10 scouts and these are not Joshua and Caleb. They refused to participate. They already saw how this is going to go. And therefore the, the 10 other scouts, they're bringing these huge fruits to intimidate the people, to freak them out, to scare them about trying to conquer the land. This is a land that raises freaks. It's a land of of people of of huge size, and therefore it's very dangerous and we cannot conquer it. Now, it is somewhat ironic and maybe a little bit morbid that the modern state of Israel, the sign, the, the symbol, the logo of the Israeli tourist organization is... People holding a a huge cluster of grapes, which is ironic because those people are villains in our history. These, of course, are the spies that spoke negatively about the land of Israel, of the land of Canaan. And it is somewhat unusual that they would use that as their logo to try to attract people to come to the land. Regardless, they spent 40 days in scouting out the land and they returned from spying the land at the end of 40 days. They went and they came to Moses and to Aaron and to the entire assembly of the children of Israel, to the wilderness of Paran, they returned to where they came from and brought back the report to them and to the entire assembly and they showed them the fruits of the land. So Rashi tells us, just to to get started here, that 40 days to scout out the whole land is unusually fast. Rashi tells us that the Almighty expedited their trip, because the Almighty knew ahead of time, of course, that for each day that the scouts are going to be standing at the land, a year of remaining in the wilderness is going to be decreed upon the Jewish people. And therefore, in order to shorten the length of the decree, the Almighty shortened the length of the original trip, and it was only 40 days, and therefore the Jewish people remained in the wilderness for only 40 years. And here we see they went and they came forth in verse twenty six. Rashi tells us that just like when they came back, they returned with intentions of giving an evil report. So too, when they left, when they departed, when they embarked on their trip, they too already had the the roots of the evil report were already present. And all the commentaries trying to figure out exactly what, what happened here. These are twelve righteous people, leaders of the tribe, men of of high stature and esteem, and they come. And they give a very negative report on the land of Canaan and ultimately spook the people. The people want to go back to Egypt. The people start there to rebel. And ultimately, the people are forced to remain in the wilderness for 40 years. How does such a thing happen? How do people that were very righteous, how do they make such a tremendous blunder? So the Zohar tells us that these people were biased. After all, they're heads of tribes. They're leaders and they're concerned that when they enter the land of Israel, there's going to be perhaps a realignment and there's going to be new elections and there's going to be appointments of new heads of tribes and maybe they're going to be demoted. And therefore that fear, that underlying fear, that bias colored their perspective and influenced them to try to find some sort of pretext to scare the people against conquering the land of, of Israel and spooking them into remaining in the wilderness and preserving and ensuring that their leadership roles are not going to be affected. There is perhaps an alternative explanation that maybe these leaders were really true to the very end and they bit the bullet for the Jewish people. You know, think about it. The Jewish people are now in the wilderness. They're enveloped by godly clouds. They're studying Torah all day directly from Moses. They're eating manna. It's a miraculous life. It's a fantastic life. It's a life that you could be totally focused on the spiritual realm, and you don't need to work the field and to engage with your neighbors and to fight wars of of conquest. They don't need that. It's much better for them to remain in in the wilderness. And maybe it's been argued that these scouts really, they took one for the team. They knew what would result from their report and they did it nonetheless because they wanted to make sure the Jewish people remained in the wilderness for a significant amount of time. So what's the content of the report? We read in verse 27, they reported to him and they said, we arrived at the land to which you sent us. And indeed, it flows with milk and honey and this is its Fruit. So if this is all you read about the report, it sounds like it's a very fantastic report, a very positive report. It's a great land flowing with milk and honey, and it has very robust fruit. Rashi tells us that any falsehood has to be nourished by a little bit of truth. Because if the falsehood is entirely bereft of any smattering of truth then the falsehood has no continuity, it will collapse. The Talmud tells us, Shekhar, Einler, Aglaim, Shaker, falsehood, has no legs, it has no legs to stand on and it will only collapse, whereas truth, emet, is very stable, and therefore you have to have a little bit of stability, of truthfulness, injected into the falsehood, for the falsehood to have any continuity. And it's an interesting idea, this is of course a broader subject, but the Talmud tells us that Messiah will arrive in a generation that's entirely righteous or in a generation that's entirely wicked. And if I were to ask you, okay, well, what kind of generation is going to be the one that's worthy of Messiah? You'll say, well, the Talmud seems to say opposites. A generation that's entirely righteous, a generation that's entirely wicked. Well, which one is it? Those, those are mutually exclusive. Those are opposites. And the explanation is that, no, they're, they're identical. Why? A generation is entirely righteous, fantastic, there's only righteousness. A generation is entirely wicked, if it has no righteousness, if there is no truth to moderate the wickedness, the falsehood, if there's not even a scintilla of truth amidst the falsehood, the falsehood has no legs and the falsehood will therefore collapse. And therefore those two generations are... Identical, because both of them are entirely righteous, because when there's no falsehood, then all you have is truth. When there's no wickedness, then all you have is righteousness. So the beginning of this report has a little bit of of truth to it. But then they begin the negative part of the report. But the people that dwells in the land is powerful. The cities are fortified, very great. We saw the offspring of the giant, Amalek, of course, the terrifying foe of the Jewish people, dwells in the area of the south. The Hittite, the Ebisite, the Amorite, these are all mighty nations. The Canaanite dwells by the sea in the bank of the Jordan. This is just such a terrifying and formidable adversary. They're strong. They're impregnable. The cities are massive and fortified. We can't overcome them. So Caleb, one of the spies, he interjects. Caleb silenced the people toward Moses, and he said, "We shall surely ascend and conquer it, for we shall we can surely do it." Rashi tells us that Caleb got the attention of the mob by ostensibly agreeing with them. He says, "Well, th- is this the only thing that Moses did for us?" And I was like, "Oh, he's about to." lay it on. He's about to lambast Moses. And therefore everyone quieted to hear what he's about to say. And Caleb says, well, this is not the only thing he did to us. He took us out of, the, of, of Egypt. He split the sea for us. He brought us the manna. He brought us the quail. He's someone that we could indeed rely on. But the people were not convinced. But the man who had ascended with him said, we cannot ascend to that people for it is too strong for us. And they brought forth to the children of Israel an evil report in the land that they had spied out, saying the land through which we had passed to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. All the people that we saw were huge. We saw the Nephilim, the sons of the giant, from among the Nephilim, we felt like grasshoppers in our eyes, and so were we in their eyes. The evil report has been conveyed And the assembly is going to descend into hysteria. Now Rashi tells us in verse 32 a very interesting idea. This is a land that devours its inhabitants. What does that mean? Rashi says that when they were traveling throughout the land, there were funerals everywhere. And they said this is just an unnatural land. Everyone's just dying. It's it's not a safe place to be. But the truth is that this was part of, of a miracle. The Almighty did it for their benefit. You have 12 Jews who are scouting out the land. They might be very conspicuous and people might start asking questions. But if the whole country is in the middle of a funeral and mourning and eulogizing their dead, well, then they're distracted. And if they're distracted, the people, the scouts could do their business unobserved. And really, it was a miracle, but they took the wrong takeaway from that. They said, oh, no, it's just a terrible land. People were dying left, right, and center. And this is, I think, a, a nice example that really everything could be viewed in two ways. There's always a good story to tell, and there's a bad story to tell. There, there's kind of simultaneous screens with two stories, and our free will, so to speak, is to choose which one of those two stories that could both, in a certain plausible way, fit the narrative, which one of those... To adopt, What they should have said is that, you know what, not only is it an amazing land, but God is unnaturally, supernaturally, miraculously availing for us to scout out and to surveil the land. They could have had that story to say, but instead they said it's a land that devours its inhabitants. We were like grasshoppers. We were so small in our eyes, and so were we in their eyes. There's an amazing midrash here in the final verse in chapter 13. It says like this. It says that there were two components to their low self-esteem. Number one, they said we were like grasshoppers. We felt really small and vulnerable. That's in our eyes. And so were we in their eyes. There's one component of low self-esteem, which is feeling a low self-image. And a second component, which is assuming others share that perception. And the Midrash says a very interesting idea. God says, When you said that we felt like grasshoppers in our eyes, that, I can forgive you. But when you said that we were like grasshoppers in their eyes, the people that looked at us, they looked at us with such disdain and scorn. We felt so small in their eyes. How could you possibly know that? Maybe they viewed you like angels. And that, says God, is unforgivable. So it's a very interesting idea here. We see That the sin of the spies was predicated on low self-esteem, on having a low self-image. It's almost as if the Midrash here and and the narrative of the Torah is telling us that it's a mitzvah for us to have a strong self-confidence and self-value and self-perception. There is a statement in the Talmud that says that a person is obligated to say the world was created for me. Of course, that could be a a haughty, arrogant perception, but here we see that saying that I'm nothing, I'm like a grasshopper, I'm like an ant, I have no value, that maybe was the underlying cause of their sin. We can capture the land of Israel, God's not on our side, woe unto us, we can't do it, we're so weak. That argument was the argument, that perception was the perception of the spies, of the scouts, and a certain part of that is unforgivable. Chapter 14 begins, the people are miserable, they're crying, they raise their voices and they wept that night. Our sages tell us that that night was Tish above the ninth day of of the day that has been designated for tragedy and misfortune in our history. And the reason for it is because of the crying, of the wailing of The Jewish people, as a result of the report of the spies, they cried for nothing. God says they're going to cry for something for their generations. All the people, they start complaining against Moses and Aaron. We should have died in the land of Egypt. We should have died in the wilderness. Why does God bring us the land to die by sword? We're just going to be slaughtered. Our wives, our children are being taken captive. Maybe it's even better to go back to Egypt. And they start consulting amongst themselves. Let's appoint a leader. Which could either mean a team, alternatively an idol, Rashi tells us, and let us return to Egypt. And Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb try to intervene. Moses and Aaron fall on their face. Joshua and Caleb, they tear their garments. They try to convince the people it's a good land. The land is very, very good. If Hashem desires us, we could be victorious. We'll conquer the land, the land that flows with milk and honey. Don't rebel against God. If he wants us, if he supports us, we're unstoppable. We'll carve them up like bread. Their protection as the part of them, if God is not on their side, if God's on our side, nothing will stop us. Hashem's with us. Don't fear them. But that impassioned plea does not work. The entire assembly, they wanted to try to kill them, to pelt them with stones, and the glory of Hashem appeared in the tent of meeting, and everyone froze in their. Place. And God says to Moses, This sin, the sin of the spies, is almost unforgivable. How long will these people provoke me? How long would they not have faith in me? All the miracles that I do. This is unconscionable. The behavior of the of these people. I'm gonna smite them with a plague. I'm going to annihilate them, and I'm gonna make you a greater and more powerful nation. Then they. This is like a redux of the golden calf. God says, "I'm going to destroy them, and I'm going to start from scratch. There'll be a new Jewish people, and Moses, you are going to be its head." And of course, instead of accepting this amazing offer, Moses launches into a prayer, into an intervention to try to save the Jewish people. So Moses begins. What's Egypt going to say? Egypt's going to say that that the Canaanites are are too powerful. Alternatively, that the, the Canaanites... Pagan gods are too powerful. These are the people that you took up from the land of, of Egypt. You spoke to them. You appeared to them eye to eye. You hovered over them with your cloud. You're going to destroy them. What 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 the people going to say? And then Moses launches into the lessons that he learned from the golden calf episode, and that is that when God threatens to th- destroy the Jewish people, there's a special prayer that you could say to delay that, or to negate that. And now, may the strength of my Lord be magnified as you have spoken. And he says, Hashem, slow to anger, abundant in kindness. He starts to list the 13 attributes of God, the 13 attributes of mercy. And it seems like it works. God says, indeed, I have forgiven as you have requested because of your words. So the dialogue is, is, is somewhat odd. God threatens to destroy them. And Moses launches the prayer, and God says, oh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give in, and I will forgive them." So, what's going on here? What is this idea of the thirteen attributes of of God, the thirteen midos of mercy, that is so effective in providing an argument, a rationale for the people to be forgiven? So the idea here, and we spoke about this in the past, the idea is that the word midah means measurement. Well, of course, we we translate it as attribute, but it means literally a measurement. And What it means is that God created the world with certain fixed measurements, which means that if someone kind of goes off the charts, if someone behaves outside of the realm of acceptable behavior, that people or that person is going to be destroyed. So God says, I'm going to destroy the Jewish people because their behavior is extended beyond the midos, the measurements that I allowed to exist in the world. And what's Moshe's praying? He's praying to enlarge the kindness, in effect, to change the way God created the world. What that means is, is that God, of course, is unlimited. The world is limited. It's limited by these measurements, by these midos. And there's a certain amount of kindness, that is allotted to the world, and that would provide forgiveness for people that behave in a way that's still within the realm of the kindness. However, here the people are, are behaving outside of the realm of acceptable behavior, outside of the realm of extant kindness in the world, and therefore the only way for them to be granted forgiveness is if God's kindness, if the midos, the, the measurements of kindness that God is allotting to the world is augmented, is expanded, only then can their behavior now be within the realm of acceptable behavior. And indeed, this prayer that we say, of course, many times throughout the high holy days, this prayer is our request for God to change the degree of kindness that he allots to the world, to change the rules of creation to apportion more kindness to the world and therefore to provide us forgiveness via this new mode of behavior, via this new mode of treatment for the Jewish people. And indeed, God acquiesces to Moses' request, and I have forgiven because of your words, i.e. I will change the way I view the world, the way I treat the world. However, there is a caveat. I'm not going to destroy them. I'm not going to kill them instantly. I'm going to kill them slowly. All the people, all the adults that are here, In the wilderness, none of them are going to see the land of Israel, with the exception of Caleb and Joshua. There's going to be a decree of 40 years corresponding to the 40 days. And over the course of these 40 years, when each one of the adults that are around today, when they arrive at the age of 60, they're going to die. And after 40 years, when all the adults have been rotated, have been recycled, their children will indeed enter the land of Israel. If they try to conquer the land, it won't be successful. Their divine protection is lost. And God forgave the Jewish people, but not the scouts themselves. How long for this evil assembly that provokes complaints against me? I heard the complaints of the Jewish people uh, that they provoked against me, and God promises to destroy them. And they are given a a horrid death that is described in Rashi. But as for the men who Moses sent to spy out the land and who returned and provoked the entire assembly against him by spreading a report against the land, the people who spread the evil report about the land died in a plague before Hashem. But Joshua and Caleb, they lived amongst the people who were sent to spy out the land and they actually entered the land of Israel and Caleb was given a reward, the land of the city of Hebron. And, of course, Joshua was the leader after Moses. How did they die? Rashi tells us in a very horrid and brutal way. Their tongues extended all the way to their belly buttons, to their navels. And worms exited from their tongues into their navels and killed them internally. Very brutal very brutal and very painful and very horrid death. Why? Because they spoke, their tongues, spoke evil, and therefore it is tit for tat, it is fitting for their behavior that they would get this kind of treatment. Why the navel? So several different answers, the land of Israel is either the navel of the world Alternatively, they kind of brought the corruption within them and therefore it entered within them. Some of the commentaries talk about how a child in utero, the mouth is their navel. That's how they connect to their mother and that's their mouth. And therefore they were corrupt. Their mouth from the very beginning of their existence was corrupt. And therefore they were punished in that way. So Moses conveys this... Punishment to Jewish people. People mourned exceedingly, and then a segment of the population decides that we're going to defiantly ascend and enter the land, even though God says no. And Moses says to them, "Don't do it. You won't be successful. You're going to be destroyed." And they say, "You know what? We're going anyhow." And then defiantly they ascend to the mountain. The Ark of Hashem's covenant was not with them. Moses did not join them, and this segment, this portion of the population, was. Destroyed by the the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that mountain, and they all died. So This is like the the epilogue of of the story of the of the Stouts. Is these defined travelers, and their rationale was that we yesterday said we want to go back to the land of Egypt. We don't want to enter the land, and therefore we want to repent for that. How do you repent for that? By showing how much you do want to enter the land, and even though it's dangerous, we're going to do it anyhow. That was their rationale. But it didn't work because in truth, repentance is returning to God. And yesterday, they said, we don't want to follow God and therefore they need to repent. How do you repent? By changing your tune and saying, I do want to follow God. Not to just go in the opposite direction of what you did till now, but to change your behavior from not obeying the will of God to yes, obeying the will of God. And now the will of God is that you spend 40 years in the wilderness. And to embrace that would have provided, indeed, repentance. But they didn't do that, and therefore they were vulnerable to destruction, and they were indeed destroyed. There is an interesting continuation of these dead people who traveled to finally try to enter the land of Israel. Uh, The Talmud tells us that when Ezekiel revived the dead, it may have been, according to one opinion, it may have been these same people that uh, centuries prior had tried to enter the land of Israel defiantly. They were revived by Ezekiel, according to one opinion, in the Talmud. Chapter 15 begins with a few interesting laws with respect to how to bring sacrifices. But it begins: speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land of Israel, land of Canaan, and you provide sacrifices, make sure with your sacrifices you bring a meal offering. And you also bring a wine libation. Rashi tells us that this is almost a way to comfort the Jewish people. They now are being given this terrible consequence of their behavior. They're not going to enter the land of Israel for 40 years. But now they're giving a little bit of, of, of of a comforting message by being told a law that relates to sacrifices only in the land of Israel They're being comforted with knowing that eventually the people, maybe their children, their grandchildren, their descendants, will indeed enter. So we read about the law of the libations and the meal offerings that come together with the sacrifices. And then we read the law about challah, which is a portion of the dough, one twenty-fourth of the dough is given to the Kohen. And if you're a baker, then it's less. It's half of that's one forty-eighth, about two percent, so two or four percent of the dough is given to the, the Kohen, and that too only begins in the land of of Israel. And there's an interesting teaching in the Sefer Hinach, which is the book that delineates all 613 mitzvot and gives some rationale for the mitzvot. And it tells us an interesting idea. It says that a man's life and continuity is with bread, with sustenance. And God does not want us to be sustained only in our body, also our soul, needs sustenance and needs nourishment and needs continuity. And therefore, we're given this mitzvah that via the bread, we also do a mitzvah, and therefore it's food for our body and also food for our soul. We get life on both halves of our existence. And then we read about some of the consequences of idolatry. What is the sacrifice that's brought if there's idolatry that's done erroneously by mistake by the public. If it's done by an individual, what if a individual person does willful idolatry? They're cut off from the Jewish people. They broke the commandment of God. And then we read about the interesting story of Shabbos desecration in the wilderness. The people were in the wilderness and they found a man gathering wood, gathering twigs on Shabbos. And they found him gathering and they brought him to Moses and to Aaron. What to do with this guy? And the law is conveyed to Moses that the person who desecrates Shabbat publicly in front of witnesses after being warned is put to death via stoning. It's an interesting here juxtaposition here about the laws of idolatry and then the story of the individual who was gathering twigs on Shabbos. And we read a little bit later on that Shabbos, like idolatry, is one of the seven mitzvos that equal all mitzvos. There's seven mitzvos, seven commandments in the Torah that embody all of Torah. One of them is idolatry or negation of idolatry, and one of them is the Shabbat, and one of them is the very last item in the parasha and that is tzitzis. Those are three of the seven, and therefore they're put next to each other to show that there's a certain internal consistency between these stories, because each one of these mitzvos and transgressions, these 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 laws they correspond to a central element of of Torah. Now, the Talmud tells us that who was this individual that was gathering twigs on Shabbat? Rabbi Akiva proves that it is a guy named Slavcha, Someone we'll meet later on, not him directly, but his daughters. And the commentaries tell us it's brought down in the Tosfos in Baba Basra, page 119b. It says, a Midrash, that this individual who was gathering towards on Shabbos, he was actually doing it for the sake of heaven. He was doing it for the right reasons. Why? The people said, you know, God promised to take us to the land of Israel. And under those conditions, we accepted the Torah. And therefore, now that we're not going to the land of Israel, we're not obligated by the Torah. It's not compulsory to us. And therefore, what did this individual do? He gathered towards on Shabbos. And he did it defiantly. And the witnesses came and they warned him. They said, if you do it, you're going to be executed. And he did it nonetheless. And you know what? He was executed. But this was all done in order that everyone else who sees it should be warned that the word of God still applies, that the laws are still compulsory, and therefore he's somewhat of a hero, even though he made a mistake. He shouldn't have given up his life, but his death taught a very valuable lesson to the rest of the Jewish people. The final five verses of the Parsha are the third paragraph that we read every day multiple times, the third paragraph of the Shema, and that tells us about the laws of tzitzis. Hashem said to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them that they shall make for themselves tzitzis, these fringes on the corner of their garments throughout the generations, and they shall place upon the tzitzis of each corner a thread of tzitzis wool. It shall constitute tzitzis for you, you see it and you remember all the commandments of Hashem and perform them. Don't follow after your heart and after your eyes, after which you stray, so you remember and perform all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am Hashem, who took you out of the land of Egypt, to be a God for you. I am Hashem. So a very interesting uh, mitzvah here, the mitzvah of tzitzis, and the lessons that the tzitzis impart, you look at them and you remember all the commandments. Rashi tells us that the word tzitzis, the numerical value of that word, the sadic is 90, the Yud is 10, so tzitzis, and then the tough which is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, is 400, which equals, of course, 200 plus 400 is 600. And then if you look at a tzitzis poured, you'll notice that it has 5 knots and 8 strings. So 600 plus 5 plus 8 is 613, and therefore, when you look at the tzitzis, you see its name, which is four hundred, which is six hundred, and then you see the the knots and the strings, and you'll remember all six hundred and thirteen mitzvos. The commentaries asked, an interesting question: that in the actual Torah, the word sits is spelled missing the second yud, and therefore it's only five ninety, and therefore you're short ten numbers. And the answers are various answers given. One of the answers is is that though it says the word sits is three times. All three times without the second yud, but the third time it says v'ha'yal It should be for you four tzitzis, and the lamin is thirty, and therefore that thirty makes up for the missing thirty of these three words of tzitzis. Interesting idea, and therefore we look at the tzitzis. We remember all six hundred thirteen mitzvahs. That's what Rashi says. The midrash, very interesting midrash here, tells us another idea. It tells us an analogy of a captain who was on the boat and took a sailor, one of the sailors in the boat, and threw him overboard. And threw him a lifeline, a rope of salvation. Grab onto the rope, and I will pull you back up. So too, the Almighty told the Jewish people, I threw you into a raging, roaring, and dangerous sea. You are thrown into the world where you're surrounded by temptations. You have a Yetzirah that could drown you. But I'm going to give you the rope, so to speak, Of the mitzvos, I'm going to throw them to you as a lifeline. You grab onto it, and I'll bring you back close to me. The captain in the analogy is God, of course, and the sailor is us. We're thrown into a dangerous situation, but the mind throws us a lifeline as well, which is the mitzvos, which are embodied by the streams. Of the tzitzis, we have to grab into the mitzvos, hold them tight, not let go, and he will reel us in. And therefore, when we see the ropes of the tzitzis, we see the strings of the tzitzis. That reminds us of not only the mitzvos in general, but the role of the mitzvos, which is to make ours ourselves adjacent and close in close proximity to God. A very powerful idea that we see here. In addition, we read about. How when we remember the commandments of Hashem, we perform them and we don't explore. We don't stray after our hearts and after our eyes. We won't sin. Rashi tells us, quoting from our sages in the Midrash and the Talmud, that there is a certain methodology of sin. The eye sees, the heart covets, the heart desires, and the body does the sin. What which what tells us, again, this is a very broad subject. What it tells us is that sin is not necessarily a natural thing that has to happen. It's something that, that it, you know, there's a certain slippery slope. You see something, and that plants a certain seed of desire in your heart, and your heart desires it, and eventually you you sin. And therefore we're told here don't explore after your heart and after your eyes, because mitzvot are not only there to bring us close to God, but also to shield us from to provide us blanket support against sinning. And if we do that, we will perform the mitzvos of Hashem, be holy to Hashem our God, remember they took us out of the land of Egypt, and He will be our God. I am Hashem our God. This is a very valuable lesson that we have to remember and reinforce every day, multiple times in our Shema. Thus concludes Parsha Shlach. Thank you all for listening. My name is Rabbi Yaakov Wolby. If you have an email you want to share with me, RabbiWolby at gmail.com. Check out all the other podcasts. Thank you for listening and we'll talk next week.